0: Welcome to uh, the CSIS Schieffer series. Uh, this is, of course, our partnership with TCU, um, our favorite college, our favorite football team, and <laughs> happens to be the home of, our fa- of their famous and favorite alumnus, uh, Bob Schieffer. I have to tell you all today, today was a really big day at CSIS. Now, we, we host uh, over 1,600 events a year. Today, we hosted at least three. Um, And for a total of about uh, let let's see, it's uh, almost 800 people came through CSIS today. Mm -hmm. Uh, We had a a, a 9-11 event today that uh, had several current uh, uh, senior officials, John Brennan, Janet Napolitano, uh, uh, the DNI Clapper, uh, and others. And and Dr. Hamry, uh, who's here, um, interviewed uh, General Hayden today at lunch. It was a fantastic day, and I urge all of you to look at uh, CSIS.org, there'll be video and audio and transcripts by Friday uh, to check that out. Um, It's my pleasure to uh, welcome you all to CSIS for this terrific session. Uh, We have two of the best journalists in the business here and three including Bob, of course, who's moderating. (laughs) Um, and with that, nice catch. Like... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was wondering who's going to get dropped. In the one <laughs> was I'm just trying to get Ignatius a movie. Yeah. That's all. All right. Well, with that, Bob Schieffer. <laughs>
1: Thank you very much, Andrew. Well, uh, David Ignatius and uh, David Wessel uh, really need no introduction. But I, I do want to tell you a little about both of them. Of course. Uh, uh, this David uh, writes a twice-a-week uh, foreign affairs column and contributes to a postpartisan blog at the Washington Post. joined the Post in 1986. He was first editor of the Outlook section, uh, then was a foreign editor. Uh, prior to becoming a columnist, he was the uh, Washington Post's assistant managing editor uh, in charge of uh, Business News, a position uh, he assumed in 1993. Uh, He's also a famous author and... Uh, one of those lucky authors. Who's, uh, how many books have you had that became movies?
2: Uh, only one, but if anybody in the audience would like to supplement that total.
1: <laughs> That's really good. And the other part is uh, uh, he's the only person on the stage that I covered his dad when he was Secretary of the Navy, so uh, back when I was the Pentagon correspondent at CBS. David Wessel, I've known for a long, long time. Are you the, You're the bureau chief now at the Wall Street Journal. No, 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 no. I'm giving up management. You've given it up. Yeah, right. Uh, but I do know something about you, and I expect you to give us a full accounting of this. I know you got briefed uh, by the president yesterday about what he's going to say tomorrow night. If you say so. <laughs> <laughs> so I know you will be... <laughs> willing to share with us on uh, whatever it was that uh, he told you. Uh, you uh, you've been at the journal for quite a while. Uh, you've written a lot of things about uh, about the economy and about the uh, state of the economy and how it plays into uh, 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 our our role on the world stage now. So I think I think between the two of you, we may can solve a lot of the world's problems today. So uh, David. Uh, I want to ask both of you just a general question. And I think we'll probably go to, uh, to questions early in this, because I think a lot of you all will have questions from out in the audience, <coughs> be thinking about what you want to talk about. Uh, let me just ask both of you just uh, a general question. Do you think that what we have gone through in this budget gridlock uh, is undermining America's global leadership? I know you've written about that, David, and uh, I'd like to hear you talk about it. Well, let me, let me begin. Uh, and My answer
2: is yes. Uh, I find that when I travel overseas, and I do a lot, I hear increasing expressions of concern about uh, the health of the US political system. Why is America not able to solve problems? I think uh, there's been a general uh, concern on, on, on multiple levels about the US ability to execute in the ways that uh, other nations expected. Uh, people were shocked uh, by the invasion of Iraq, in, in part because they, uh, in Europe, certainly believed it was the wrong uh, policy, but they were even more shocked by the inability to, to, to succeed, to make the occupation work. Uh, I think the expectation was America might do this tough thing, but then they'd, then they'd quickly pacify the, the opposition. With the financial crisis of 2008, uh, you, can, you can read and even more feel when you're in China. Uh, the, the Chinese leadership's uh, s- surprise that America, this big, fast locomotive behind which they've been following to their great a- advantage uh, in the global economy, uh, beginning to slow our, our economic management, uh, in their view, unreliable. They've taken to lecturing uh, American officials. And and now uh, the the this really when you look at it from outside, astonishing uh, decision to hold our, our our budget and indeed our very credit rating hostage to what to outsiders seems like uh, uh, partisan and, and and petty political fighting. So I think it's it has cost something. I just Bob, if if you would be interested. I just want to quote some numbers I was looking at this afternoon, thinking about our session from a a Pew Research Center poll that was done, released several weeks ago. Uh, In 15 of the 22 nations they surveyed, the balance of opinion is that China either will replace or has already replaced the United States as the world's leading superpower. And get get these uh, numbers from key U.S. allies. In France, 72% of those surveyed think that China either will or already has surpassed the US. In Spain, 67%. In Britain, 65%. In Germany, 61%. In other words, among our closest allies, that's the perception. Here's another really uh, interesting set of figures from this survey. Uh, This is on the question asking West, West Europeans, Is China the world's leading economy? From 2009, the percentage of people who said that in Spain jumped from 22% to 49%. In Germany, from 28% to 48%. In Britain, from 34% to 47%. In France, from 35 to 47%. In other words, in the space of two years, you have 20 percentage points to a near majority saying that China is the world's leading economic power. Uh, those are numbers that should uh, seriously concern Americans uh, because they, they tell a story of a world that's rapidly losing confidence in, in American leadership.
1: So how did it happen, David? Uh,
3: I'm glad you asked that because I was afraid you were going to make me take the other side from Ignatius, and that <laughs> would be a little difficult. Um, I think that what we've seen is a combination of complacency, uh, senility, and uh, some misguided understandings of the realities of the world in which we live. Uh, you know, for a long time, we just figured that, well, no matter what we did, we'd do it better than everybody else. And that went for our schools and our engineers, and, our, and, and that turned out, it turned out that there are a whole lot of smart people in the world and giving them a little bit of education, and they're giving us a run for our money. I mean, uh, it, it is appalling that a country as rich as ours doesn't have the world's best schools. And it is shocking that my friends Claudia Golden and Larry Katz, economists at Harvard, say that for a, gener- for a century, every generation of Americans was significantly better educated than its parents. But that's no longer true. I think that the other thing that happened is that we we, we made some mistakes, and we seem to be unable to cope with uh, accepting the mistakes and doing something about them. So I think the, the recent episode is, is quite instructive. Uh, for many Americans and many people in the rest of the world had long ago concluded that, OK, Americans can't make things as cheaply as the Chinese or the Mexicans can. And maybe they can't even make them as well as the Japanese can. But the one thing the Americans have figured out how to do is run a good financial system only that turned out not to be true and I think that really shattered a lot of people's illusions about things you know at the very least we thought we could do that and it's taken us a long time to to recover from that shock I think that's one of the things that's hurt us with the Chinese but I think the thing that is almost more alarming than the no is more alarming than the numbers that David cited is that I think many of our own people are losing confidence in our institutions in our in the press in the in Wall Street, and the government. And that makes it hard to make the decisions that we have to make and the tough choices, as the cliche goes, that we have to make in order to put ourselves back on the right track. Did this happen? We're coming upon a
1: a very important anniversary here, uh, 9-11. Did this begin in the wake of 9-11, or did it come some years after that?
3: I don't think it began with 9-11. I mean, I suppose you could make the case that 9-11 begat Iraq, and Iraq certainly is part of the, um, the problem we have with our both public image outside and our own self-image. But you know, when you think about where we were a few days after 9-11, we, our standing was never higher. I mean, we, fit, we, were, we were pulling together as a people, and the rest of the world was on our side. So I think it came afterwards. I think we squandered some of that goodwill. But the economic crisis of 2007, 2008, I have a really hard time drawing a line between that and
1: 9-11. What do you think?
2: Um, I'll take the, uh, the contrary view, although obviously this is uh, something we'll be trying to understand the rest of our, of our lives. Uh, I've used an analogy uh, often, and forgive me if I've used it with any members of this audience, um, to uh, the shock of, of September 11 is being like the shock when you hit a spinning top, uh, and I should say I, this is an analogy I, I've stolen from my father, who's 90, so he, he he knows things about about tops and about the world. So um, <laughs> if you knock a spinning top, um, often it will sort of you know veer off and then come back to the center point and keep spinning. It's, it's, um, other times you'll knock it and it'll begin to wobble more and more. And, and obviously the difference between the two is how fast the top is spinning to begin with. And it seems to me that it, it turns out, we, we've learned that our top wasn't spinning as fast as we thought it was. And when it got knocked, rather than quickly coming back to a center point, uh, it, I, it has wobbled much more than we thought. I think that's that's true of our of our of our political system. I think it's true of our economy. I think I think I wrote the other uh, week that this idea that we have, that's sort of built in in our faith in liberal democracy, our faith in free markets, that there are self-correcting mechanisms that are built into the systems that we have, that will that will that will self-correct. Um, you know. That wasn't true in the time of Keynes. Keynes's great insight was that those self-correcting mechanisms don't work and that you sometimes need to intervene. It's, it, it was true when modern politi- political philosophy began to deal with the, all the imperfections uh, of, 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 of democracy. And, we, and we, you know, we do need to remind ourselves that these systems are very imperfect and that we've just seen an illustration of that. And that for that reason we have to work all the harder to, you know that, it, that it's not going to take care of itself.
1: I, I, I was struck by one of the things you wrote about 9/11, where you said, and I want to get back to, to the spinning top because I think you make an interesting point there. But I just want to ask you about this. You wrote that you thought uh, historians may well look back on, on 9/11, and what they will find significant about it is that basically we overreacted. I, th-
2: I think that that's. I think that that's right. I, I think. Um, I hope that 's the lesson that our our government officials have learned certainly that 's a core uh, tenet for for our president and his national security team. They work very hard to keep the rhetoric uh, restrained. the war on terrorism you know you can understand why people did that, but that had the effect of exalting our enemies uh, of making them seem larger than, than they would have otherwise uh, the, the, the uh, so I, I, you know, I, 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 a paradox for me, Bob, is that I, I, I find that on the substance, many of President Obama's policies in dealing with these problems look right to me. I, I think he, he's often, And yet they, they're not having the, the desired effect. He's not able to communicate them in a powerful way. I think that's one of the paradoxes of this president in foreign policy. Domestic policy is more complicated. But uh, on foreign policy, I think Obama's understood we need to pull back from these ways in which we overreacted, uh, trim our sails, work with allies, kind of get back in the, what you'd say is, the, I would say, is the groove of American
3: power uh, since, since...
1: you think we overreacted, David?
3: Well, I don't have a judgment about Iraq and Afghanistan. It's not my uh, field of expertise. Um, I think the, there's a big question about whether all the money we spend on homeland security is really necessary and is it making us safer? And there's a lot of interesting work being done about how hard it is to answer that question. If your chances of being caught in a terrorist attack are extremely remote, then is spending twice enough, twice as much money or three times as much money to prevent it really making you any safer? And the other thing, of course, is that it, um, the, all the incentives for our government are to put one more layer of security in and one more layer of security. Nobody wants to be the President of the United States who says, you know, metal detectors at airlines, airports, it's catching a lot of uh, people with jackknives and it's not stopping any terrorism. Let's just suspend it and see what happens. I mean, I'm not sure I'd have the guts to do that. So there's a kind of ratchet effect. You can never go back. Um, and I don't, you know, on one hand, we didn't have another major terrorist attack. And it, I'm certain that things have been stopped by all this intelligence gathering and everything. But on the other hand, you can't really answer the question, well, what if we had done less? Would we be less safe? And so I, don't, it, I think it's the right question to ask. I just can't figure out how we answer it.
1: Well, let's talk about uh, the Congress is coming back. The president's going to make a speech. And I do know there were several columnists that were uh, briefed on background, I guess, by the president yesterday. And he's talking to other people today. Uh, you're welcome to share anything you'd like to from that. Uh,
3: <laughs> I, I haven't confirmed anything here. <laughs> he hasn't even confirmed he well, was we there are in, What uh, do you think is going to happen tomorrow night? Well, the first thing is that the backdrop for this is really extraordinary. I, I'm kind of disturbed that we don't have a sense of national emergency about our economy. We have more unemployed Americans than there are people in Greece. There are four and a half million Americans who have been out of work for a whole year, and they're still looking for jobs. That doesn't count the ones who have given up. Uh, this, the hope that the economy would be rebounding by now has evaporated, and the argument now is only about how slow it's going to be. And so the notion that somehow, well, the government's done everything it can, and we just have to wait. Uh, it takes us back to the arguments that Keynes had that David referred to. So I think the president recognizes that uh, he's running for reelection against two opponents. One is a Republican and the other is the unemployment rate. And he's desperately, as I said in the column this morning, uh, looking f- to somehow replace the narrative with, I'm the, I'm, I'm the president who presided over 9% unemployment as far as the eye can see, with some sense that faced with rather obstinate opponents in the, in the Congress, faced with people who he considers to be uh, extremists and unwilling to compromise, that he can convince people that, look, there are things we could do. And I think he's pretty much said in public what he's going to do. He's going to talk about renewing some of the, the payroll tax cut that he already has out there with a little bit of extra incentive for employers to hire. He's going to talk about infrastructure and public work spending on the theory if the government can borrow for next to nothing. It ought to borrow for next to nothing and do useful things. I think he's going to talk about long-term unemployment. Um, but I think the question is whether there's anything that the president can say that will persuade people in Congress that they ought to join hands with him and actually do it, as opposed to just having an argument about who's got the better remedy for the next year and a half. Uh,
1: David, uh, we're, we're hearing it's going to be a big program. I mean, that uh, some people were talking about 300 300- uh, billion dollars, but some people are saying it may be more than that. It may be close to 400 billion. Do you have any inside info on the, what we might? I, I, here? I, 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 I mean, I, I think everything. I think everything this David just said sounds right to me. I mean, in, in general, I think that's what it's going to be about. But I
2: don't want it to be a, a, any more of a fraud than I need to be with this audience. I, this is not my area of expertise. Our reporters who cover this uh, would say. Exactly the same things that that uh, that David just said in terms of the the items in the program. We're reporting um, on the internet this afternoon that the total is likely to be in the area of 300 billion. Mm-hmm. Um, so that you know the, the the notion would be larger. That's that's not what our reporting is right now.
3: Mm-hmm. now it, that's big. That's two percent of GDP. That's if you believe in this kind of fiscal stimulus. That's a that's a significant dose. Mm-hmm. And I think the president also recognizes that. The American people, and our polls show this, continue to show this, a lot of people are more worried about the deficit than they are about the economy, and he's going to try and respond to that by promising to pay for it, that this joint committee that Congress has created, our latest uh, committee to save us from ourselves, uh, is going to, he's going to ask them to come up with the $1.5 trillion they've agreed to come up with, and then enough more to cover the cost of this new stimulus, Actually, which he won't call a I stimulus. I
2: mention one additional thing that I don't, I don't think David men- mentioned that, that uh, our reporting uh, cited and I, that I think is important, and that is some support for state and local governments Correct. to reduce the 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 otherwise even more severe decline in government employment. I mean, if you look at back at this latest jobs report and what's scary about it, in part you're seeing the the effects as state and local governments shed workers. I think one of the best things about the stimulus, the much derided appropriately so, stimulus package of 2009 was that. Uh, there was a part that was really focused on state and local government, and I think it delayed the, uh, the, some of the harsh effects uh, and kept um, the, some states from, from really reeling. Uh,
1: so what—both uh, of you have, have said this is not your general area of expertise, but what, what is your sense? Does the president have any chance of getting any of this passed? I mean, what? how does— how does that
3: I think the out? president has a chance of getting some things passed I expect that tonight we'll hear from the Republican presidential candidates that everything Obama proposes is stupid and they, whatever he proposes we're against but I think that there are some Republican leaders in Congress who are aware that this whole episode with the debt ceiling didn't exactly reflect well on them uh, people you know, do not think that this was They they think they are signing a lot of blame to all parties to this charade. And as a result, and they have to run for re-election. And I think some of them will be looking for something that they can say that they want to do affirmatively. So Speaker Boehner and and Majority Leader Cantor sent the president a letter. And I thought, compared to some of their recent rhetoric, it was relatively conciliatory. And they talked about maybe there's some way we could support infrastructure. And they said they were pleased that he was looking at a program uh, that, they do in Georgia, where basically you continue to collect your unemployment benefits, but while you're collecting them, you, get, you work for somebody who gets to try you out, and the employer doesn't have to pay you anything. It's a kind of trial period funded by employment benefits. So I think they're making some noises like maybe there's something they'll get done, but the atmosphere is pretty poisonous, as you know.
1: You know, I, I thought one of the things that you wrote about, uh, David, uh, recently, you said the uh, faith in democratic government to Solve problems is what propelled the spread of American values uh, around the world, and and you said that you know uh, free markets and capitalism uh, were not just desirable, but they seemed inevitable after after you know we defeated fascism in World War II, and then after uh, the Soviet Union collapsed uh, uh, in 1989. Uh, but you pointed out that people no longer feel that way. And, I mean, that's kind of seems to me kind of the really sobering thing right now. Democracies are not Don't doing very well these days with the problems they're confronting, not just here, but in other countries. Uh, to Europe.
2: avoid uh, uh, just uh, beating up on America and, and uh, bemoaning our, our future, uh, an even more, uh, to me, intractable uh, demonstration of the of the inability of democratic government to, to get it right is, is Europe. Um, it, it's become a truism to say that you cannot have monetary union without you know, 16 countries sharing a currency without what amounts to a, a single coherent fiscal policy that, it, that can be imposed on the members. The chance of that happening in a meaningful way, I think, still in Europe is, is tiny. Even if it were to happen, the degree to which this Europe, which is shrinking in almost every country, shrinking in population, its ability to support the benefits that it's promised its workers and that are the bedrock of European social democracy is zero. It's just not possible. The only way they could escape this is to you know, bring in uh, migrant workers, workers flooding out of North Africa, And, and you know, that's one Area where I'm really optimistic about America, you know, our, our our inclusive democracy, our ability to take people from all over the world, give them an opportunity, help them to get rich, uh, you know, is, is, is fantastic, especially by comparison to Europe, which is still rigid, to me, in you know, enable unable to be inclusive to draw people in.
3: I think also that I mean, when you could talk yourself into being more depressed than need be. The facts are plenty depressing, but. Uh, David mentioned North Africa, and I don't know how that's all going to turn out, but um, I don't think I would have sat here a year ago and said that there would be a largely bloodless overthrow of Mubarak in Egypt. So something interesting is happening in the Arab Spring. But more importantly, you know, I spent three weeks in China earlier this year, so, you know, for a daily newspaper reporter, that makes me an expert. (laughs) Uh, um, And I didn't get the feeling that this was a country that was going to have another 10 years nearly as smooth as the last 20. Uh, and that one reason is that there is a lot of yearning for democracy and free speech there. I spoke with a bunch of, uh, students at a business school outside of Beijing, and one of them said to me they were tired of being confined to what he called the Chinese Internet, where they were limited into what, what they could look at. And the ability of them to use one, all those skills that they used to hack into our systems, people in China are using to organize demonstrations and to spread words. And so there is a kind of, uh, in, in, in India now, where corruption is so endemic and this kind of modern day Gandhi rises up and, dis- dis- and he discovers that there are millions of people who are as disgusted with corruption in him. So there are signs in some of the emerging markets of a uh, yearning for democracy. We ought to be not so quick to dismiss that, uh, uh, even as we despair about our own or the European.
1: What, what is the way out of this, David? Well, I, you know, I,
2: I would um, cite somebody many people in this room uh, know and admire, uh, I know, and that's Lee Hamilton, who said to me, as he was preparing to leave the Woodrow Wilson Center, that the bedrock of his career, when he became a congressman, was the idea that although party differences were strong, that you had to put the interests of the country first and that that was just understood by, by every responsible member of Congress. And if you didn't understand that, you stood very little chance of being re- reelected over time. And I have to say, that idea um, uh, seems too remote now. And you want to feel that people on both wings who ignore the interest, best interests of the country to pursue partisan solutions will pay a price for it. And that, and that that's what will drive us back towards the recognition that uh, If I saw that happening, if I saw David made a very interesting point, that, that if, if the Republicans feel they're going to they're gonna pay a price for, for, for essentially refusing to join in, in, in some kind of jobs program to, to deal with that issue, uh, if if they feel like it, then, then they're going to be more responsible, yeah. but I don't see that. I, and it's you know I, I mean as David said tonight, you know that we'll see each of the candidates um, make. I, I expect a very inflammatory uh, uh, attack on. Uh, and he, here's Mitt and Romney, who, who arguably is the most economic literate, economically literate candidate in the field, uh, pr- presenting a, a program that's just a sort of incendiary. Um, uh, very conservative anti tax arguments against the policies of this administration.
3: And I look at that and I go, you know what? We're not going to get there, from here. I don't, I don't know what changes it. Um, we know that it's kind of a cliche to say that at times like this, leadership is important, and um, uh, there's, we seem to have a leadership dearth. I mean, the three of us have been around. Washington for a long time and 500 years I'm 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 struck (laughs) that's just you (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm constantly struck by how few people in Congress are like Lee Hamilton or some of the big deal makers like you know Dan Rostenkowski or Bob Packwood or Bob Dole or Tip O'Neill and that kind of personality seems to be lacking this president doesn't seem to have that knack and so but we do live in a place where we, the voters throw people out. From time to time, and people come in. And then, as you know, when, when I talk about this uh, elsewhere, I'm sure you guys get the same question. Sooner or later, somebody asks me if I think the press and cable television and the blogs are contributing to that. And I have to say yes. It's certainly the the notion that somehow we've developed a technology where everybody can get their opinions confirmed on some website doesn't lead to a national sense of consensus about what our problems are and I I just I don't I have this sort of deep faith that we'll find a way out of it but if you ask me to diagram the path I couldn't find it you know I, I think one of the interesting things and I I've had this feeling for a long
1: time but it seems to me that in modern times often after a watershed election the out party will go one step beyond what is good for the out party Uh, in the next election. For example, after Kennedy was elected in 60 and 64, uh, you saw the uh, Republicans throw out all of the, uh, you know, the the leaders of their party and go for Goldwater, who was a good man but was far to the right of his own party. You saw Democrats do that uh, in 72 uh, after Nixon was elected, and, and, you know, they they wound up uh, nominating uh, George McGovern, who was far to the left. Of, of the uh, majority of their party. And I wonder if, if Barack Obama's election was a watershed, uh, if, if the Republicans have gotten themselves into some kind of situation like that, where when you, when you go in and, and add up the percentages of the Republican candidates, when you take Romney out of the mix, you find that about at least 50 and perhaps 60 percent of the Republicans that are polled now want someone uh, who would seem far to the right of the, hmm. the mainstream of the Republican Party. and I wonder if we're into no, one of those I think it, I think cycles enough. at this point. I, that's,
3: that's wise. I think that makes a lot of sense. One, the other thing I've thought is that people seem to be unhappy and they vote to throw somebody out, mm-hmm. and then the winners assume that the party, that the country has moved in their direction. Mm-hmm. So I think the House Democrats misunderstood Barack Obama's election as a swing to the left. I think absolutely. And they overdid it. And I think that some of the House Republicans misunderstood their election as thinking the country had moved to the right when actually the country hadn't moved as much to the left or the right as either one of them thought. So it, it's not always the leaders, the winners of an election who take it beyond right. where
1: right. probably they should have taken it. I think sometimes the people on the other on the other side do. But that too. goes to
3: David's point about so that implies that it's kind of self-correcting. Mm-hmm. And he's raising the very disturbing possibility that, yeah, well, what if it isn't self-correcting this time?
1: How much difference do you think this is made? I mean, where the United States is and how it's perceived right now. Uh, how much difference is this really made around the world, David? I mean, I, we all worry about, I mean, what do people think of us in then? Sometimes we find out, well, maybe they're not thinking of us. Um, they got something else on their minds. Maybe it's just we're d- being self-centered Despite something. Standard
2: & Poor's, uh, the dollar is still the world's uh, uh, storehouse of value. It, 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 people flee to the safety of the dollar and the safety of the United States economy. We're the largest and most liquid. Um, you could argue that some of the things that are causing problems are themselves healthy reactions to the excesses of the past. Uh, we, we said for the last uh, decade or m- more than that, the United States needs to improve its saving rate, that we're just consuming much more than we produce in the, the satellite line. Well, guess what? We're saving a lot more. Uh, and our, our, our corporate sector in particular is saving. It's, 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 it's hedging against the storms that it fears are just over the horizon. It's, you know, I mean, the liquidity crisis where you can't, you just can't, it's like you can't breathe, it's a panic attack for the whole economy. You know, well, they don't want to go through that again, so they're sitting on this enormous stash of cash. Somebody told me last night that, that Apple is sitting on over $70 billion in, in, in the cash reserve, doesn't distribute, has no dividend, pays no dividend, sitting on over $70 billion. Uh, but, you know, these, these arguably, these are these, there's, a, there's a healthy component of this, and uh, the degree to which our financial system has been self correcting as opposed to Europe's. And I think our financial system has really put itself back together. Um, I think European banks are still, at some level, still um, not really being honest with themselves, with their regulators. I think that's part of what you're seeing in Europe is this sort of, oh my gosh, you know, what has my counterparty really got? Uh, on his books. Uh, So um, I I think that's a a healthy sign. I'll give you one about it, just don't want to get sort of sewed down in the dumps, since we're talking about Republicans and Romney. Um, I was just in Europe, and I was talking to an Italian businessman. And he was describing making a pitch for a fabulous leveraged buyout he did of the Italian Yellow Pages, It was like one of the great deals uh, over there. And, he, and his, his, one of his principal financiers attack, was... It sounds was, like a joke. <laughs> it sounds like it's a joke, but it was like, I mean... So one of his uh, principal uh, financiers was Bain. And he described making his pitch to Mitt Romney, who was then at Bain, and Mitt Romney asking really great questions and being totally on top of everything and saying, you know, let's do this deal. And it returned 20 times what everybody put into it. And so, you know, the, the music, cue the music. So anyway, it's a nice, uh, it's a nice
1: Mitt Romney. <laughs> well, let's go to the, uh, to the audience, if you have questions, and we can, you can ask them on any subject. That you, yes. <clears throat> I have a question for David Wesson, Mic Here comes the microphone.
4: In the your f- opening remarks, you talked about the failure of the financial system, the big disappointment, uh, which took people by surprise. Um, and, of course, you can now couple that as we look back with the um, enormous amount of inequity in the uh, economic condition of the, uh, of the American people, the differences in wealth. But I want to ask you a question, and whether or, not, or a comment rather, on what I perceive to be possible causes of the financial system's debacle. Two items. One it would be, of course, the repeal of Glass-Steagall, which a lot of people have talked about. But the other one that I haven't heard anybody talk about is, when the investment banks changed from partnerships to publicly held companies, when they no longer had any skin in the game, and they went big, big time, and took a lot more risks. And we saw the result of that.
3: Uh, It's funny. I, I agree with your point, but I don't think I agree with it quite so much about the investment banks. So there's this interesting change in America where a lot of the people who were responsible for being checks on the system. Lawyers, accountants, and stuff like that, were organized as partnerships. And they seem to have a great deal invested in their reputations. And I think that you can explain a lot of what went on in the corporate scandals of the early 2000s by looking at what did they, how we they changed to be for-profit companies, shareholder-owned companies, where you couldn't ever say it's not good for us to do this deal because if you, we don't do it, someone else will do it, so we might as well do it. So it was kind of a race to the bottom. And the incentives in these firms changed, I think, in the 2000s. I think in the, with regard to the particulars of, this, of the recent economic crisis, it has to be more than that because some of the firms that went under, like Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers, the people who are running them actually did have quite a bit of skin in the game in those firms. So it's, it, it, th- there was something about the change in the ethos of American business and the checks on the financial system that I think you're right in identifying was a big part of the climate for the change. But I'm not sure I would attribute it exactly to the investment banks.
1: Next question. What
3: do you think
1: – I just asked both of you this. Uh, we've talked a little bit about the Republicans and some of the things that, uh, you know, uh, being obstinate uh, – and what we're going to hear in this debate tonight. David, what do you think the president did wrong? What's the worst mistake he made
3: since coming to office? I, I'm a little comfortable with the worst, so can I just mm-hmm. come up? I think with the benefit of hindsight, and I want to underscore that, uh, they didn't do enough on housing. But one of the reasons the, the economy is still so lousy is we haven't got beyond this housing problem. One out of five Americans with a mortgage has a mortgage that's bigger than the value of his or her house. And <coughs> the, the more introspective me- former members of the president's economic team, if you press them, will, will, will acknowledge this. Uh, now, this is an area where there is no fair answer and where there are only flawed ideas. And so the president would have had to say to his advisors, OK, I get it. There's 20 things we can do on housing. They all suck. Let's try the three least bad ones. So that's one. And secondly, I don't think the president has managed this deficit thing very successfully. The right policy, this is what Ben Bernanke at the Fed talks about and others, is something like the president is now proposing, which is a little more fiscal oomph now in return for some fiscal restraint in the future that we can really count on because it's credible. But the president has never been able to kind of articulate that that's what I'm trying to do here or convince anybody that he's actually doing it.
1: What would be your answer to
3: that? Um, well, I, l- I like the the points that David made. I would
2: say, looking at the uh, intersection of politics and economics, that the big mistake the president made was to uh, push forward with a, a major piece of health care uh, legislation when there was not a political consensus in the country about about what what to do. I think that 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 that's a, mis- a mistake I hear I'm, I'm quoting something that Lee Hamilton told me that you that that a major piece of social legislation like this requires uh, some greater
1: uh, clarity and broad consensus and, right.
2: broad consensus and uh, you know I, I mean also don't think it's I, I think that the that the bill that was passed doesn't get at the real problem which is which is which is the cost of delivering health care in America it's going to take a, a Basically, a generation to change how medicine is practiced, but the notion of, of guaranteeing uni- universal access to a wildly uh, expensive system, which is what we've done—I I mean, when you look at it, it's just wasn't a good idea. The public, the public's yeah. discomfort with it is not um, Ill, ill-founded.
1: And I, think I agree with you. I, I mean, I think that if the president—I mean, the, the, econo- the economy was in such a shape that I think the president. Should, I mean, this is total hindsight, you know. Very good 2020 hindsight. I think the president had said when he came into office, I know I told you that health care was going to be a major thing, and that's a major goal, and it still is. But, folks, we've got to fix this economy. And when I get it fixed and get it rolling, then we're going to do health care. And then I think if he'd have found something in health care, that he could have found a consensus on to get Mm -hmm. passed and gotten that passed, Mm -hmm. whatever it was, divided up into two years. I mean, Lyndon Johnson, we remember him for his civil rights record with two civil rights bills,
3: the 64. He knew the country couldn't swallow all of it. It And one bit of evidence in support of that thesis is that when's the last time you heard the president brag about health care reform? This was supposed to be a a once-in-a-generation reform, and he never mentions it. And and I think
1: also the way, and you, you alluded to this, I mean, you basically passed it by a legislative trick, reconciliation. And yeah. I don't think you can ever pass major legislation like that and make people like it when they think uh, a lot of people thought it was unfair. I mean, I know it's part of the process and all that, but the way it was pictured and Republicans were able to say that, you know, this was a trick. I think, that, I think that hurt him too. Uh, that, but all of that is hindsight. Yes, sir?
5: My name is Michael Thorley <coughs> from Capital Group. Um, if I may be permitted a one sentence, maybe two sentence comment and then a question that uh, in the nature of democracies, I come from another one, um, <laughs> we get the governments, we sort of get the governments we deserve, that the, the people vote for and the politicians that we vote for. So maybe we also need to look elsewhere, as well as blaming the politicians. Um, my question is, even if, um, people have got it wrong in the Pew uh, polls that uh, Mr. Ignatius referred to and have exaggerated China's strength. Um, The situation, I I want to ask this, If if the United States were able to deal with all of the present difficulties it faces, economic and political, is it going to be in the position that it once was, to exercise the sort of leadership that it was used to and that its allies and the rest of the world were used to? Or is it going to have to face a very different circumstance where its preponderance uh, is not as great and therefore a different way will become necessary of conducting its leadership globally?
1: Well, it is an entirely different circumstance. (laughs) I mean, no. you know, because you've had the, the rise of these other nations. But go ahead. Well, I I think that um,
2: it it's a certainty that the primacy the United States experienced after the Second World War, when Britain was exhausted, uh, Europe was exhausted, um, and then the uh, sort of uh, Spotlighted uh, uh, single superpower role that followed the uh, collapse of of the soviet Soviet empire um, th- those moments w- won't return uh, the rest of the world is is and this is you know this is the positive miracle of of my lifetime the way in which the rest of the world is getting richer i mean the, the way in which China you do have to remind yourself uh, Rather than you know beating yourself up about the Chinese threat, that the way in which people have come out of poverty in this enormous country and, and you know, created wealth and, and economic dynamism, dynamism is it's just it's it's a, it's a fabulous story. There's no reason that that shouldn't, in the end, be beneficial for for the whole world. It will there'll be adjustments for the United States, but I don't. I mean, I think if the United States can can get back to solving its own problems. With good leadership, uh, there's no reason why we shouldn't be able to coexist. Fairly, I think uh, you know, I, I don't think it's all that complicated to co- coexist with a rising China, a rising India. Um, so I, I think this is one of those situations where I, I'm less worried about about the what's happening overseas or the changing balance of U.S. power versus the, those of other countries than I am with the U.S. getting its own fundamentals right. And if if we do that, I think the rest will take
1: care
3: of itself again David uh, I agree everything that david said uh, and I
1: think uh, I certainly do too um, but I mean I think we 've got some real doing to do here I mean because basically what we have now is a government that 's dysfunctional we have a Congress that simply no. cannot address head on uh, the serious problems uh, confronting
6: i
2: mean let's the let's countries. be let 's be blunt about it what the United States needs and I think we said this uh, John Hamre, I, I can remember talking about this at a CSIS about two years ago. We need a really great president who will uh, speak to the country, gather the country, un- you know, unite people, bring them together. Uh, the, the, the elements of the, the right policies are pretty obvious, I think, um, and, and 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 get it done. A lot of people were hopeful that Barack Obama would be that person. He seemed to have unusual gifts as a leader. Um, I think for for Democrats and Republicans alike, uh, the Obama presidency has been a disappointment. Can he recover and become that great leader? If not, um, will our system generate somebody else? But I think it's that simple. You know, uh, read American history. Governing America is always difficult. We are really a fractious country. You know, politics is
1: always a a pie fight here. But But I think, David, what's different now is in order to get yourself elected, to any seat in Congress, you have to raise money, so much money that you have mm-hmm. to go to various uh, interest groups in your in your congressional district. You have to sign off with so many interest groups before you get here. Yeah. That once the congressman or congresswoman gets here, their positions are set in stone, and they can't compromise on anything. And And there have been few times in American history we've been in that shape, but when a legislative body gets to the point where it can't compromise, then then it becomes what we have today, uh, totally dysfunctional. And, I mean, I think it's going to take more than a great president. I mean, I think the whole system, we've got to think about how we're electing people, the the part that money plays in politics now. Uh, I think it's going to be more than that, but individuals do make a difference. I mean, there's no question about that. Individuals do make a difference. I'm not one that believes in the tide of history, yes. Go ahead, anybody.
3: <coughs> Stephen Piper, following up on, on that last one, do we have fewer elections in November, competitive elections in November than we ever have before? And the real elections, the real contests, seem to be in the primaries where you have to be on this wing or this wing. And so the, the country's divided on every issue, 52, 48. But the, the competitions in the primaries are not. Right, I think that the way Congress is districted is part of, is in yes, addition to the a money. a big part of. part of it. In the old days, uh, when we weren't so smart and didn't have quite so many computers, it was hard to be scientific with the districts the way they are now. And we have this kind of uh, Faustian deal between Democrats and Republicans where they draw some districts that are favorable to one side and districts that are favorable to the other. And the people who get elected to them never have to appeal to anybody who's kind of in the center uh, to get reelected. So there's no incentive to compromise in Congress. I think one interesting experiment that's going on in California is they took the districting out of the hands of the legislature and tried to appoint a nonpartisan commission and we'll see whether that, that spreads, because I think that's one of the reforms that could change. The number of incumbent members of Congress who get defeated is much lower these days than it used to be, and that's part of this bad dynamic.
1: Yes, sir.
6: Right here. My name is Hugh Grindstaff. The other day I was rambling through my desk, and I picked up this article, "Rapid Right Takes Over the GOP, Look Magazine, 1963. What happened since then is that we didn't have social media. We didn't have ways. We we had Uncle Walter. We had Chet Hunley and, 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 I mean, Brinkley. Mm -hmm. We had certain sources we went through information to get. And that information was documented. Now we have everything. Uh, And people follow Fox News or they follow Face the Nation. A lot of us should follow Face the Nation. I so wish a lot more would actually. <laughs> but what I'm saying is, is... I might get a raise. <laughs> <laughs> well, you need one anyway. <laughs> uh, what, what I'm trying to say is, is we have, we've narrowed our own selves. And 12% of Americans who, who supported the Tea Party controlled what the other 88% of us are affected by. If you consider what happened with the debt ceiling fiasco, mm-hmm. how do you get the regular Americans back into, the majority of Americans back into saying, saying, we want change, but we don't want 12% of the 12% to control our change?
1: Well, I think it's a very good question, I, and I'm not sure I know the answer, but I do know how much politics And journalism has changed since the days of uh, Walter Cronkite and Chet Huntley and David Franklin. You know, I always tell this story when I talk to journalism students when I was a young reporter back in Fort Worth. And you know, about 10 days out from every election, there'd be some report that one of the candidates had a girlfriend on the east side. I don't know why, but all the girlfriends lived on the east side. (laughs) And and we would go, uh, we reporters, we'd go check it out. Sometimes it was true, sometimes it was false. Sometimes it mattered. Sometimes it didn't. We obviously didn't report any of that until we checked it out. Uh, now there is no, and, but it's always those whispers. There's no whispering campaign in politics anymore. There's no whispering anymore. If somebody finds out something, they just put it on a blog, and it's out there. And you know. Uh, then we have to deal with it. I mean, the way we deal with it, in the mainstream media is is the two Davids. No, here we go check it out. We we try not to report anything unless we're, we're sure it's true. But what does the candidate do about it? Do they deny it and give it wider circulation? Do they ignore it and hope it goes away? I mean, they have really no recourse because these rumors, the people that put them out, you have to find out who it is. Most of the time, you know, it might be some kid living in his parents' basement. I mean, what are you going to do? Sue him? I mean, what? you know, you really have no recourse against that. The best example of that is, uh, you know, uh, during the Republican convention when all the stories were going around about Sarah Palin, and and nobody in the mainstream media reported one word of that until the McCain campaign put out a written press release and said her 17-year-old daughter was pregnant. Uh, and yet, everybody in politics knew about it, and you know, a lot of people knew about it, And but that's what we're all dealing with, and uh, I've given you a long non-answer, because I don't know what the answer is to how you deal with this, but I know it has changed. It has changed politics, and it's changed uh, journalism, quite frankly. Who else? Yes, ma'am.
4: On the topic of that 12 percent holding the 88 percent hostage, I was wondering what your opinions were on whether or not the role the Tea Party candidates, or those that call themselves the Tea Party candidates, played as a as the emergence of a third party, and if this is something that we're seeing, and if, I mean, sure, they didn't, they acted as their own, you know, actor, but is this something that we're gonna be continuing to see? Is this something that this third party or this group of individuals who have the potential and the motivation, possibly, to act in such a way again?
3: You know, people, uh, speculate on the rise of a third party about this time in every presidential campaign and every once in a while one emerges Ross Perot certainly had a big impact Um, I I think it depends whether they have staying power look a lot of the Tea Party candidates were elected on a platform of I promise to be angrier than you are and they've delivered on that Uh, but uh, it's a little hard to see where you go with that I can imagine Uh, if the Republicans nominate someone like Romney, that there's a bunch of people who split off and try and run a a third-party candidate with a more conservative person. I can imagine that happening. Uh, But the the very things that Bob talked about, the amount of money and raves in politics and all, have raised the barriers to that, at the same time as the Internet and the ability to organize have lowered them, and I'm not quite sure where the balance is. Uh, Our colleague
2: uh, Tom Friedman uh, and others write sometimes about the angry center, and whether you'll you'll see some kind of uh, third-party movement or some some movement uh, in the center that will uh, force people back from the wings toward the center uh, to to capture you know what is the decisive uh, swing vote after all, and I think that'll be interesting to watch. I'd be I'd be surprised if it happened uh, this time. Um, I I never forget my high school American history teacher who used to have every morning a set of, of concepts which he would hide with the map and then at the end of class he'd roll up the map and on this subject he used to say, third parties in American politics are like bees. Once they sting, they die. <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, on that note, I think we'll end. Thank you all on behalf of the TCU Chief School of Journalism and CSI. Thanks for coming.